Well, good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, just by uh, way of quick reminder, uh, we have uh, services every Sunday on campus at 8 o'clock, 9 and 1045. And just in case you haven't been on campus for a while, wanted to let you know that. Um, I'm really glad you can join us um, on the TV or phone today, whether you're traveling, maybe you got sick family members at home. Um, really glad you can keep up with our series and our services. Um, but we really believe there is no replacement for in-person gathering and worshiping together as the body and family of Christ. And so we'd love to have you back on campus um, and would love to see you even this coming Sunday. And so join us at one of our services, 8, 9, or 1045. They have coffee and donuts, which is always just a nice little bonus to come on campus. Um, in just a minute, Gerald is going to share our message from the passage in Matthew this morning. I'm really excited for you to hear what he's going to share. But before we do that, I wanted to give you uh, just a little bit of insight, maybe some direction in terms of responding to uh, a cultural um, conversation that's come up in the last few weeks. Uh, many of you are aware of, um, if not all of you are aware of, the fact that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States um, has ruled to overturn the Roe versus Wade precedent, which basically removes the nationwide um, restriction on states making laws against abortion. Now, uh, there's been a variety of responses. It's evoked a variety of emotions for various reasons. Um, but I, I wanted to simply say, as we think about this um, topic and this conversation, that we as a church function in a biblical worldview, um, which means that our starting point is often different than the rest of the world. And so when we approach a conversation or we respond to um, a circumstance, it's often a different response than the rest of the world has. And the reason is because we function on the premise, the truth, that the creator loves his created. And that's our starting point. Our creator God, our father God loves his creation. He loves his children. And that means that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the decision, if you're a woman um, who's walked through the tragedy of abortion, if you're a man who's walked through with a partner through that, um, that circumstance, God the creator loves you. If you're a, a woman walking through a crisis pregnancy or you're a partner walking through a crisis pregnancy with a woman, God loves you. The creator loves his created irrespective of our decisions or our circumstances. And certainly as the unborn, um, God's created. God loves his created. Our Father God cares for the unborn. And so as a church, um, we stand with the unborn and we stand um, for life. And we stand with those who are dealing with difficult and tragic circumstances in the midst of their own story. And we believe that God has called us to love and to serve and care for everyone, every human being in our community, and we will continue to do so. There's an organization that we partner with called Embrace Grace, and I love their premise for having church ministry related to this issue. They say that instead of being a pro-life church, uh, we are a pro-love church. That means we love the unborn and we stand for the rights of the unborn. But that means we love every woman that is dealing with difficult circumstance in pregnancy and we stand with them. And it means we love people who have walked through difficult and painful circumstances in their lives and made decisions that, um, that create a lot of pain and maybe even regret. We love every person that God has both created and allowed for us to have touch points with. And so we're going to continue to do what we're doing and called to do as a church. That is to stand with crisis pregnancy centers like Tree of Life. 
and partner with them financially and both with volunteer efforts, with fundraising efforts, um, with continuing to promote the values um, that that organization stands for. We're going to continue to stand with uh, women in crisis pregnancy by offering Bible studies and groups and resources to help those women make choices to choose life. And so we're going to have Embrace Grace studies continue at ABC. And then there's other uh, groups that follow that, like Embrace Life um, and Embrace Legacy that we're going to continue on um, in just loving our community the way that God has called us to love our community. And that's the best way I feel we can respond is to choose life, but to choose love. And that's what God is calling us to because he, as the creator, loves his creation, irrespective of where we find ourselves on the spectrum. God loves his children. And so we're honored um, as a church to partner with these organizations. And if you'd like more information, you can visit our website or you can uh, give us a call at the church office. One more thing I wanted to share with you as I switch gears here is we've talked about over the last few weeks this partnership that we have with the Freedom Initiative Church. And it's a church planting organization in Kansas City. And we have a really exciting opportunity as they get ready to plant their next church. So I want to share this video. And in the video, you'll see three men. Um, on the right-hand side is a guy by the name of Matt Thomas. He's the founder of Freedom Initiative Church. In the middle is Pastor Will. Will is the first pastor of Freedom Initiative Church on the outside of prison. And then we have Pastor Abe. And Abe is about to launch this next church plant. So let me introduce you to these guys, and then I'll follow up in a minute. I've been known Matt for over 10 years and actually been while I was in prison. And so while I was in prison, uh, we got we got linked up together planting a church within the prison, uh, which was Hutchins Professional Facility. And so we actually planted two churches at one at one particular point in time on the same day. Uh, you wanna talk about God doing a, a great work. Uh, just really equipping the power of man in prison to eventually hope that they come out into our community and share the light of to share the light of Christ, right? So our hope, our vision, our goal is at the end of the day to allow our community, the people we see, the people we 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 live with, a little monks, to help help them know the Christ whom we serve, help them experience the freedom that we also have in Christ. So that's our greatest hope more than anything. Amen, amen. Now, Pastor Will, how did we meet, brother? It's still kind of a similar story to Abe's. Better looking, a little younger. Oh, Don't believe that. But I, I actually also met Matt while I was in prison. Uh, after he planted the churches with Abe and Hutch, moved up to Lansing. We planted the churches in Lansing seven years ago. Uh, three years ago, I got out of prison, and we planted the Freedom Initiative Church here in Lenexa. Um been going almost three years now. Yeah. It's crazy. It was yesterday. And now we are obviously excited about the Quindaro Project and uh, very excited about planting this church with Abraham and uh, having our opportunity to, to raise up more leaders who will raise up leaders. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to serve God and walk in our calling and love on this community over here. And obviously that wouldn't be possible without you guys. Like I am blown away by the generosity. The fact that a, a church 2,000 miles away would invest in us and what we're doing here, it just, it just blows my mind. So as you can see, these guys are energetic. They're excited. God's doing an amazing work in the Freedom Initiative Church. 
And we're getting ready to send a team back in about a month, August 14th. We're gonna celebrate the launch of this church plant at the Quindaro Building um, in downtown Kansas City. Pastor Abe is gonna be there uh, pastoring. Pastor Will will be there to co-pastor. And uh, Matt has raised up two more leaders to pastor in their absence at the other church. And we're thrilled to see what God do, does in the life of this church. And so if you'd like to partner with us as we partner with them, um, you can do so financially, you can do so through prayer, and you can do so through going if you'd like to go on this trip on August 14th. Um, so give me a call at the church office. Um, send me an email, jeff at abcchurch.org. Let me know um, how you're interested in partnering with us. Um, we're going to try to raise about $25,000 to help them finish this building and get it ready for August 14th. And you can do so online. Uh, it's just abcchurch.org. And there's a give button there. And there's a drop down to select GoFund. And you can just put Church Plant or Kansas City or Freedom Initiative uh, in the memo. And we'll know where that money is supposed to go. So thanks so much for joining us this morning. I'm going to hand it over to Gerald. Good morning, ABC family. So good to be back with you. My name is Gerald. I'm the discipleship pastor here at ABC. And my wife and I celebrated 30 years of uh, wedding anniversary this last week and went on a, an epic trip. We flew out to Nashville and then made some some road trip over to North Carolina to spend some time with friends and then flew up to North Dakota where my family is and we ended up driving back on an epic road trip together with my parents um, all the way from North Dakota to California and it's just good to be back with you and one of the things that I noticed on the road trip portion is that I could either drive or I could look at the scenery on the left or the right of the road. I couldn't do both very well. In other words, I, I am a terrible multitasker. If I was looking at the scenery, it wasn't long before the rumble strip on the side of the road was waking me up and letting me know that I had drifted from my proper lane into the, the shoulder of the road. So maybe you understand that too, but we tend to think that we can multitask. We tend to think that we can be more productive if we try to do more than one thing at a time, because that just feels really lame to us. But the fact is, we can't. And we have a funny video here that I want you to check out. This guy is on a bike, he's making a video, he's drinking a coffee, and this is just kind of how life goes. Check it out. Yeah, so this will be a cool little snippet here. Uh, we're riding through downtown Austin. Crossing. Have you ever seen anything like that or tried to do that? It's just so obvious to me that when we try to multiply our effectiveness by dividing our attention, we become less efficient and we just frankly make a mess of things. Maybe you've done that a time or two in your life as well. And today, as we continue to preach our way through the book of Matthew, we find that Jesus shows us that this concept is typical of our relationship with him too. We tend to take a multitasking approach to our relationship with God. And what, we, what I call that is a divided heart disease. So that's the title of today's message, Divided Heart Disease. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 19, and we'll read through to um, the end of verse 24. Before we read, let's pray. Father, we come to you 
now in Jesus' name, thanking you for these words that have been spoken by the mouth of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Holy Spirit, and are fresh words of perspective for us today. Lord, would you show us to what degree we have divided heart disease, and would you show us how we can lead our way forward from here? So we submit ourselves to your word. We pray that you would have your way among us today now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Reading from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this brings us to point one, the disease. We find this in verse 24, and the summary is, is you just cannot serve God and money. You cannot multitask in your affections. But we tend to think that we can. We are all born with this, some degree of this sort of of heart disease, where we, our hearts are divided. We have divided affections. It's like we try to multitask with the priorities of our heart. And the underlying assumption of this verse that Jesus is saying here in verse 24 is that we are prone to think that we can serve God and love money all at the same time. And Jesus is so clear that you can't. He says, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and hate the other, despise the other. Now the word used here indicates the kind of service that's typical of a slave. So the Greek word is douluo, and uh, scholars define this word in this way. They say it's to act or conduct yourself as one in total service to another. It's to perform the duties of a slave. So think about acting and serving, conducting yourself in complete service to one other person. Now, the Bible uses this word to describe the initial relationship that we all have to sin. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Rome in chapter 6, verse 6. He says, We know that our old self, that old sinful person, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's our same word here from this passage. We are all born slaves to sin. But now the Bible also uses this same word to describe the believer's relationship to God. Paul speaks in this way in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. Chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of, of this church and the reputation they have, he says, They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There's again our word, to serve 
as a slave. Paul says this in Romans 12, he gives clear commands, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, you know, at the beginning of his letters, he always starts with his identity. And it is such a, a core concept for him that he identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ. Same word. And this can be hard for we Americans to receive. We are a people who live in the land of the free, right? And as Christians in America, we hate the idea of submitting our will and being in total service to anyone else. We tend to love our freedom and we tend to work hard to preserve it and to want that for ourselves and for others above most other things. But one of my professors in seminary made it very clear that God has never promised his people freedom from servitude. He has only promised that we might be freed from serving the tyrannical masters of death, which is Satan and sin, and to be freed to serve a gracious master named Jesus, who leads us and others into eternal life, into the abundant life that he came to purchase for us. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6 is that we are to have a singularity of focus in our affections, a singularity of focus in our service. So think about it. Each of us is a slave to someone or to something. Who is it for you? Or what is it for you? You see, Jesus isn't satisfied just to be an add-on to your life. And we tend to get distracted by material things, simple things, to the point that Jesus said this in Matthew 19. He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We can become so distracted by the material things. You see, we own things, but sometimes these things exercise ownership over us, where we become slaves to those things. I've certainly experienced this in my own life. Back in high school, I was a sophomore and I bought my first car. It was five years old. My uncle had bought it off the showroom. It was in beautiful condition. It was a, a Ford Thunderbird. And somewhere early in college, I decided that I was gonna go on a quest for power, right? So this car became the place that I sunk all my money into. We pulled the engine out. I had the cylinders bored 30 over. We put in TRW forged pistons at nine to one compression. We put Cleveland heads on it, re-drilled uh, the rocker studs for three eighths so we could run big block Chevy rockers on it. It had a cam in it, guide plates, hardened push rods, dual plane intake, and a Holley 600, right? And some of you are confused, but if you know, you know. I put a ton of money into this car, and here's what happened. My investment in that car meant that it was the object, primary object of my affection, to the point where literally my mood would either rise or fall based on how well it ran that day. We own things, but sometimes our things own us. You see, and it's not that material things are bad. That is not what Jesus is saying here. But what he is saying is that material things make terrible masters. Jesus deserves 100% of your fear and my fear, of our honor, of our respect, 
of our devotion and our service. And he'll go on later in this chapter and he'll say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. So church, Jesus alone deserves to be our master. He deserves to be the sole object of our heart's affection. And if he's not, we have reason for concern. So, how can I discern to what degree I have distracted heart disease or divided heart disease? Which brings us to our second point, the diagnostic. Jesus addresses this in verses 22 and 23, and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, so this is smack dab in a paragraph between treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven and serving God and serving money. Now, why is Jesus talking about the eye all of a sudden? What is that about? Professor of New Testament Michael Wilkins says that Jesus seems to use the eye as a lamp that will illumine an inner person's life or a person's inner life. So according to Wilkins then, the eye is a lamp that shines light on the affections of the heart and the internal motivations of a person. Now in ancient Near Eastern culture, the culture to which Jesus was speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, one who was generous was said to have a good eye. And one who was stingy was said to have a bad eye. You see, your eye discloses the perspective of your heart on treasure. So someone who is said to have a bad or an evil eye is one that's stingy and who covets what belongs to another. And this goes back way even to the time of Moses. Moses writes about this in Deuteronomy 15. And he says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Did you hear and did you notice the connection between the heart and the eye here? Did you notice that you are not to have a bad eye or a stingy eye? You're not to be grudging against giving to your poor brother. Having a bad eye then is like the same thing as having divided heart disease. Now, contrary to that, having a good eye means that you're generous. It means that you have undivided loyalty in your heart. God's word addresses this too in Proverbs 29, I'm sorry, Proverbs 22, verse 9, where he says, whoever has a good eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Do you see the good eye is coupled here with generosity, someone who shares what he has with somebody who has less. And Matthew even tell, or I'm sorry, Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew chapter 20. He tells about an owner of a vineyard who goes into the town square at the beginning of the day, which the first hour for their day is 6 a.m. And he gathers workers there 
and he sends them to the vineyard to do the work in the vineyard. And then later that day, at like 9 a.m., he goes and he finds more people standing around and he hires them, sends them to the vineyard. And again at noon, and again at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., when the day is almost over, he still finds people walking around who, who are not working. And he asks, why? Why do you just stand here idle all day? And they say, no one has hired us. So he hires them, sends them into his vineyard. Now, the people he hired at the beginning of the day, they made an agreement. We will work to you all, for you all day for a denarius, for a day's wage. And at the end of the day, the foreman is asked to pay all the laborers for what they had done that day. And he is charged by the owner to pay the people who arrived last. So those people that he hired at 5 p.m., at 6 p.m., they get paid. And what do they receive? They receive a denarius. So now the people that were hired at 6 a.m. look at the owner and they're assuming, oh, we're going to get more because these guys that only worked an hour, surely if they get a day's wage, we're going to get more. But when they get paid, they get the denarius that they had agreed for, upon. And that makes them angry. And they approach the vineyard owner and they, they say, hey, why? Why is that the case? And the vineyard owner says, hey, I have done you no wrong. We had agreed that you would work all day long in the heat of the sun for a denarius. And then he asks this, do you begrudge my generosity? And when I'm reading in my Bible, there's a footnote there. And when I look down, there's a, a, a literal translation of the Greek, and it says this, Is your eye bad because I am good? So these people were stingy. They were, they were begrudging this generous vineyard owner. And the, the word or the way culturally it was described is that they had a bad eye because of his generosity. So the question this morning, church, is this. How is your eye? Another way to ask, do you have divided heart disease? Are you ready to take this diagnostic? So here's a little test. I want you to think about your calendar. And I want you to think about your online bank statement. Think about those two things. You generally know how you invest your time. You generally know how you invest your financial resources. So with these things in mind, I'm going to ask a series of questions. And maybe later today, you actually need to go and open up your calendar or maybe actually go online and look again at your bank statement. But do that with these questions in mind. Think about your time. Where do you spend it? Are you just squandering time or are you really investing it? And if you're investing your time, who are you investing in or in what? Are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ with your time? If people were to look at your calendar, and if being a Christian were illegal, would they find enough evidence on your calendar to convict you of being a disciple of Jesus? And if you knew today was your last day on earth, would you invest your time differently? Now think a little bit about your talents. What are they? What are these special gifts and abilities? Who has God made you to be? What's your motivation for using your talents? Where or how are you investing those? Are you making the world a better place because of your unique gifts and abilities? Are you serving Jesus with your gifts, with your talents? And now think about your 
online bank statement, your treasure. Where do you spend your money? On yourself? On others? On things? On experiences? What's your primary motivation? The motivation of your heart behind the way you spend your money? Are you serving Jesus with your financial resources? And if people looked at your transaction history, would they be able to identify you as a disciple of Jesus? These are incisive questions that really cut to our heart and, and make us, they challenge us to look and wonder to what degree we have divided heart disease. So as you look at these areas of your life, what do they tell about you as a person? Do you tend to be generous or do you tend to be stingy? Would Jesus look at you and say that you have a bad eye or would he say that you have a good eye? Would he say that you have undivided loyalty? Or would he say that you have divided heart disease? So a next logical question is, what is the outcome that I should expect if my eye is not as healthy as Jesus says it should be? Or if my heart is more divided than Jesus says it should be? Which brings us to our third point. There are two prognoses that Jesus brings up here, and we find those in verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. That's the first prognosis. If we lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, here's what we can expect. We can expect them to fall prey to destruction by moth and by rust, and to disappearance by thieves. Now, does that sound like a durable investment portfolio to you? It doesn't to me. You see, the fact of the matter is, is our earthly investments, they're perishable. If you store your cash in a sack and hide it in your house, it literally will go up in smoke if you have a fire. It's perishable. And they're also vulnerable. You can crash your new car the moment you drive it off the lot, right? It'll never be worth more than the, than the right before you get into it. And a thief could just grab your diamond necklace and run off with it as though it's his own. We are vulnerable, these earthly investments. That's why, again, in Proverbs, God's word um, addresses this in Proverbs 23, beginning at verse 4, where he says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Another thing about earthly investments is they're non-translatable. What I mean by that is they just don't make it into the afterlife. They don't make the leap from earth to heaven or from this kingdom to the new heavens and new earth, to the kingdom of God. And you know this is true because none of us, I don't think, have ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul with the stuff in it, right? People know that they can't take this stuff with them. So... What are we supposed to do? Jesus gives the next directive for us in verse 20. He says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now note here, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't downplay the importance of laying up treasure or even speak against the fact that we're laying up treasure for ourselves? 
That's not, that's not what he's saying here. He's just saying he wants you to invest your treasure wisely. He's saying invest it in heaven. Store up your treasures in heaven. Make sound investments. And if you do, you will find that these investments are both durable, where they are not destroyed by moth or rust, and they're secure. They are not vulnerable to theft. So now we have to ask the question, what is treasure in heaven? And I think what Jesus is talking about here is this idea of rewards. Already in, in chapter 6 alone, he has mentioned the word rewards seven times. In the previous paragraphs prior to today's passage, Jesus is talking about rewards. And he talks about it again in Matthew chapter 10 where he says, The one who receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. So the things that we do on earth as we interact with people, the way we receive them, the way we serve them, become the basis for our heavenly rewards. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, He who plants and he who waters, so the people that are sowing the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and those that are continuing to water or cultivate that seed, they are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each will receive his reward according to his labor. So how do I earn these rewards? How do I lay up treasures in heaven? It's by partnering with Jesus as he builds his church. That's the simple New Testament biblical answer to that question. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16. He says, you are Peter, speaking to his apostle Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the local church is God's plan A for saving the world, for preparing people for eternity, and there is no plan B. It is the local church, and we serve Jesus by partnering with him as he builds his church. And the disciples of Jesus finally got this after the day of Pentecost. When we read the book of Acts, we see this. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we hear Paul talking about it in this way. He says, according to the grace that of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day he's talking about here is the day of Jesus' return. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. You see the link between the work we do on earth as we partner with Jesus while he builds his church and receiving a heavenly reward. Verse 15 goes on, If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through fire. 
So our rewards are not linked to our salvation, but they flow from it, and they are a meaningful part of our experience in the next life after Jesus returns. But why? Why should I invest my time? Why should I invest my talent? Why should I invest my treasure in storing up treasures in heaven? Which brings us to our final point, which is the prescription in verse 21. It shows us the motivation behind what we're supposed to do here. Verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The answer is, why should we do this? Because contrary to what our culture says, we actually can lead our heart. You see, our culture for years and years and years has been telling us that we need to follow our heart. Listen to Walt Disney. He says, let your heart guide you. It whispers, so listen closely. So there the idea is we are all to be led by our heart, right? That's what Walt Disney has been teaching us and our ch children for years. And Rihanna even speaks into this. She says, I always believe that when you follow your heart or your gut, when you really follow the things that feel great to you, that you can never lose because settling is the worst feeling in the world. So here, for her, settling or not following her heart would be the worst feeling in the world. But let's think about this idea of following our heart in light of some biblical truth. There's a verse in Jeremiah 17, it's verse nine, that says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. Your heart, my heart, is a liar and it's desperately sick, it's gripped with infirmity. Should we really be following our heart? if that is the truth of what our heart is. I don't think so. But what Jesus is saying here is we actually have the ability to not follow our heart, but to lead our hearts. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where we, if we choose wisely where to put our treasure, our heart will follow it. We lay up treasure in heaven because it's a wise investment. That treasure is durable, it's secure, and having treasure in heaven will lead our heart to value the things of heaven. Think about it even in terms of earthliness. Uh, if you have funds that you have invested in the stock market, you can bet you are going to pay attention to the stock market because you have investments there. It's the same principle. We make investments in heaven and our heart's affections will be on heaven. And Jesus says that the prescription for this divided heart disease is to lead our heart by laying up treasures in heaven. So how do we do that? We lay up treasures by investing our time, by investing our talents, by investing our treasure. So my questions, church, to us today are, are these. How and where does Jesus want to use your time as he continues to build his church right here in Atascadero? On this campus and off this campus, in the home, in the workplace, how does Jesus want to use your time to build his church there? Or your talents. What are your unique talents and abilities that Jesus wants you to invest in partnership with him as he builds his church? 
Some of you may not even know how God has really made you, how he has gifted you with his spirit and these unique ministry abilities. You may wonder how to answer this question. We have a helpful spiritual gifts guide by Ken Birding that we'd love to make available to you. You can contact the church office or if you're here on campus, you can pick it up at the Connect booth and we would love to even sit with you and work through that and help you understand how God has made you so that you can see maybe new opportunities that you haven't even thought of, of how you can partner with him as he builds his church. And thirdly, treasure. How is the Holy Spirit leading you to invest your financial resources as he builds his church? Is it to give of your first fruits, of all of your provision, give the top of that to the, to the general fund here at the church? Or is it to give over and above that to the Go Fund where we actually support missionaries who are boots on the ground, on the front lines, planting churches, making disciples there? Maybe it's to give to the Benevolence Fund so that you can partner with people who are less fortunate here in our body and help them meet the needs because you have some excess. You may even need some help with your finances in order to give more joyfully. This fall, we'll be offering financial peace as a small group class, and you can opt in there and find some practical tools for how to deal with your finances so that you can be even more effective at stepping into the joy of laying up treasure in heaven. And we also have a copy of Randy Alcorn's book, the treasure principle, if you just want to read more about this and, and understand it a little bit better. So I don't know what the Spirit is prompting on you in terms of what a faithful application of this morning's message is, but just to recap, we all have some degree of divided heart disease, and the prescription is we are to lay up treasures in heaven, and the reason behind that is because when we do, we are leading our heart to beat for our affections will be right there in heaven with God and what he's doing. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the way you preserve them and for the traction you are getting in our congregation through them today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a level of conviction to me a level of conviction to each of my brothers and sisters on how you want us to step into a higher degree of faithfulness in laying up treasures in heaven. Lord, would you, would you lead each one? Would you show us what faithfulness looks like? And I thank you that I see so much evidence of people who understand it and get it and are living according to this. But Lord, there's room for improvement for each of us, so would you show us by your Spirit how you want us to grow in generosity? and that for the good of your church and for the glory of your name. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. And now, as a closing exhortation, let me remind you of Paul's words to the church in Colossae, where he said, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do at all for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Amen. Have a great week, church. We love you.